name, amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Like I said, it's good to see you. Um, last Sunday, I got ripped apart kind of by, um, I got ripped apart <laughs> by my, my wife, my staff, and uh, they're ripping on me a little bit because they're like, uh, Aaron, you were not completely honest with the church last week about everything that's been going on. You kind of exposed some things and talked about some different things. And they're like, you weren't being completely honest with them. And, and so they're kind of, they were on my back a lot. Because if you were here last week, I talked a little bit of how it's a little bit of a weird season for me. I feel like the past month, uh, there's a lot of things around me that don't feel really fixed. And I'm a fixer kind of a person. I like things to be fixed. And so I've been turning to all kinds of things. And like on Thanksgiving Day, I loved putting up the, the, the Christmas lights on the home. It was cold and freezing and raining all day long. And I loved being out there putting lights on the house because that, that was a complete, completed project. I come back in and start doing a puzzle. And I hate doing puzzles. I've never done a puzzle in my life. But like literally for the next two weeks, I worked on a puzzle and finally finished it and completed it and stuff like that. And uh, they're like, yeah, that's not the entire story, is it, Aaron? And I was like, no, okay, it hasn't exactly been the whole thing. So I feel like I need to begin today with a little bit of a confession. Um, on Thanksgiving Day, uh, I watched a, um, a Christmas Hallmark movie. <laughs> and I feel like I need to repent, maybe even resign or something like that. I'm like, and I liked it, right? I, I love the movie, right? I, I feel like that's the worst thing I, I feel most shame about right now. I'm like, I watched this Christmas Hallmark movie. I was like, uh, that was awesome. That's exactly what I need in this season right now. Um, anybody else there? Who's, who's in the Christmas Hallmark fan club, the movie? Like, okay, you see a lot of ladies. Okay, any men? Any men in that club? There, okay, I see one hand. I had one in the first service too. And he was wearing a pink shirt. And I was like, okay, that makes sense. But I was too. So it's like, uh, hey, I'm with you, brother. I was there. And I could watch that thing. I was like, I love the predictability of the movies. Like, you know exactly how everything was, is going to go. It always works out. It's always happy in the end, is it not? And I was like, yes, this is, I'll we'll take a little bit of this at this season of time. And I found this little thing on Instagram. It was talking about the, uh, uh, the eight essential elements of a Hallmark Christmas movie. I thought it was hilarious because I think it's exactly right. Every single one of them kind of goes the exact same format all the time. Uh, number one, the leading lady is a, is a popular 90s actress that you almost forgot about, right? Lacey Charbet. Uh, Candace Cameron Bure, <laughs> Kelly Pickler's in there. She's saving Christmas over and over again. Um, just majestic, I'm telling you. It's, uh, it's Oscar-winning stuff. The leading, the, the leading man, right, the leading man is a good-looking war hero who can fix pretty much anything with his hands, and he's in touch with his feelings, right? Like, he, he like, knows how to perfectly articulate his love for you and for everything, right? Poetry, the whole deal. It's awesome. Um, everyone in the movies are good-looking. Or have you noticed, it's like, there's no, there's no like, not good-looking, even, like, the, the extras in the movie. Like, everything is, is perfect and beautiful, even the in-laws and stuff like that. They're nice, um, which has been my experience, Etha. I know you're around here, but anyway. Um, there's always a failing family business. That's always a big part of it. Like, some business is always crashing. There's always this tension between uh, the, the hustle and bustle of uh, a big-time cities and the, the peace and serenity of a small-town feel. Like there's always that tension that's going on there. Uh, a gust of wind is always evidently a sign from God. You need to marry the person that you're with that night. Have you ever noticed this? Like, it's in the middle of the winter in like Manhattan. And you're like, woo, it's windy. That must mean I'm supposed to marry you, right? And like, that's a sign from God that it needs to, to work out that way. Uh, but of course, number eight is that uh, it always works out. No matter whatever the tension may be, right? Christmas is always saved. Hope is restored. You always fall in love. And like, that's how every single Christmas movie ends. It is just perfect. There's a bow all neat and tidy. Tied up at the end, you know how, everything, how every one of those movies are going to go. Uh, and so I've been digging some of those things this Christmas. 
When I was reading Psalm 91, I couldn't help but feel like Psalm 91 feels a little bit like a Hallmark Christmas music movie. You guys pick up on that a little bit as I'm reading it? You're like, whoa. Like it's saying it's making a lot of promises here that they don't seem to always, always be true. I mean, it's promising some really, really big things. I mean, it actually says, uh, if you say that the Lord is my refuge and you make the Lord the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you and no disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They'll lift you up in their hands. They won't, you won't even strike your foot against a stone. In other words, if you just say, hey, the Lord is my refuge uh, and you trust in him completely, then he's not even gonna let you stub your toe, basically, right? And meanwhile, you're listening to some of this and you're going, okay, this doesn't seem to really align with the experience a whole lot. Like, it doesn't seem to align with real life. It seems kind of like a, a little bit of a Hallmark Christmas movie. I'm thinking of, like, pretty much every single missionary story that I know of. I mean, what means Ed hasn't suffered tremendously for the sake of the gospel? I'm thinking of Jim Elliott, right? Like, Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, Peter Fleming, Roger Udarian. It's that, that famous crew in the mid-50s that went uh, and, and made contact with the Akas, this uh, cannibalistic tribe no one's ever been able to reach with the gospel, very uh, animistic and hate-filled kind of a tribe. They're reaching out, trying to go there to, and to preach the gospel to them and to love them. Like, were they protected? I mean, Jim Elliott got a spear through his heart and was immediately killed, trying to love the people that actually, tried to, that actually took his life. I mean, where's the protection there? Richard Wormbrandt. I'm thinking of him like 14 years in a communist prison for defending his faith and saying, no, I'm never going to bow to another God. I'm never going to deny the God who gave his life for me. I'm never going to do it. Just never going to do it. 14 years being tortured repeatedly um, simply because he would not give up on his faith. I'm thinking of all the heroes of the faith who suffered under slavery, people whose faith would not break even though they were not spared from the evils of slavery back in the day. I mean, church, I hope you understand, like Barna says, this is one of the consistent things that we hear about why people leave the church all the time, right? They, they, they can't reconcile this God who protects with the reality that, hey, I don't always feel protected. I was talking with a lady on the street a number of uh, years ago. This is her story. We're talking about the things of God a little bit. And she says, okay, honey, you can try to pray for me if you want to, but I just want to let you know, like, I'm out on God. I'm done with him. He was supposed to protect me be this great protector God who loves me and all these things like that's not been my experience I haven't been protected ever in my life talking with a mom a little while ago and her big question is why didn't the Holy Spirit prompt me in that time so that I can understand what was actually happening with my kid why didn't he let me know about the evil that was about to take place why didn't I wake up in that moment church you've got your stories don't you like you you know what that's like that that, that why God moment like why would you allow this thing over here to happen church like we know what that's like how do you reconcile the promises that are here in this psalm with a book like job which is pretty much all about how bad things do happen to really really good people uh, that, that love god how do you reconcile the promises that are here in this psalm with what jesus has to say in john 16 when he says as long as you are alive uh, you will have tribulation in this life today you will have suffering, there will be trials, there will be difficulty, there will be pain. Like, how do you reconcile that with that? Or Matthew 16, 24, when he says, if anyone's going to come after me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross daily in order to follow me. Church, like, how does he protect us when we know at some point we're not going to always feel protected or it's not going to seem like we're actually being protected? That's what I want to deal with today uh, in this psalm. So if you have your Bibles and want to turn there, it's Psalm 91 is where we're going to be. I'm also going to be putting a bunch of these things up on, this, on the, uh, the screen right here. 
The psalmist kicks things off in verse 1, and I want you to see the context of this and, and who the promise is actually for, because it's really, really important to understanding the entirety of the psalm. He kicks things off in verse 1 with some very specific details about who the promise is for. He says, whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide, will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. It's the same thing in verse 9. If you say, the Lord is my refuge, you make the... And, the Lord is my refuge, and you make the most high your dwelling, then no harm will overtake you, no disaster will come near your tent. In verse 14, God interjects his own voice in this psalm. In verse 14, he says, because he loves me, because he's one who actually loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him, I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. So why is he going to rescue? Why is he going to protect? It's because he loves me. It's because he loves me. He actually loves me. He wants to spend time with me. So right off the bat, what we're seeing here in the psalm is that it's not just a promise for everybody. Like it's not, it's not a promise, it's not a universal kind of a promise right here uh, for any, that everybody's going to be protected, that he's going to be this God who there's going to be no pain, no suffering, no trials, no temptations, no evil in the world. We're all going to be protected, the exact same thing over here. It, very specifically, he's speaking right off the bat to, to people who actively dwell in the shelter of the Most High. These are people that, that, that savor being in the presence of God. These are people that are actively, functionally trusting in the promises of God in this season. That's what he's talking about. These are not people passing by that are waving at God. Uh, this isn't necessarily every single believer either. This isn't somebody that says, hey, you know what? I prayed a prayer when I was a kid. Boom, I'm in. I show up for holidays and stuff like that. I throw in a few bucks in the plate, that kind of a deal. We're not talking about people that are just waving at God and that pass by, that happen to show up at church from time to time, may even serve a time or two or something like that. We're talking about people that, that know who God is and actively dwell in the presence of the Lord. That's what he's talking about. Um, this past week, I found this interview. I've been following a little bit uh, the whole Kanye thing, his you know, his whole going around and, and all of his, um, the new album, uh, his evangelistic crusades and stuff. I, I think it's been fascinating. And honestly, like my whole take as a pastor is, look, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to celebrate pretty much anyone who's giving all praise, glory, and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's what he's doing right here. I'm going to celebrate that and we'll let the, we'll let the fruit play out and stuff. But, uh, but I celebrate that. I'm like, look, people are coming to faith and, and he is proclaiming things right. And so I'm celebrating a little bit of this. And I'm checking out this news story this past week because everybody wants to know, hey, is he legit? Is he real? What's going on? And so this news crew comes in and they go into one of the churches he was doing his little Sunday morning thing at. And uh, they wanted to go and uh, they're interviewing a bunch of people afterwards. And one of the observations they made was they're like, look, the majority of this crowd, everybody we're talking to here, these people don't ever go to church. And they said, these are people that have we've stepped foot in a ch church pretty much ever in their life. However, they're curious about what God's doing with this Kanye, with Kanye. I mean, clearly it's a complete 180 turnaround. This is not who he was to his own admission and stuff like that. And so they interviewed one guy. He's there with his mom. He's probably a 16-year-old boy. And I thought it was fascinating what he had to say. He said this. He said, I thought the whole experience was very transformative and a brand new experience for me. Before today, I've never really kept God in my mind. But now I'm going to be more open-minded, and I think that's really what it's all about, being open-minded, that I'd be able to keep God in the back of my mind, which is actually very consistent with how about 25 to 30% of Christians talk about God today, according to Barna and stuff like that. But um, I'm listening to that interview, and I'm kind of going, okay, look, number one, part of me, I'm celebrating everything. I'm celebrating every movement to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything that's going to give him praise and glory and honor. I'm celebrating every seeker. I'm celebrating every person who's in the consideration phase of knowing God, which clearly this young man was. But I'm also on the second part of me, I'm, I'm sitting there kind of going, okay, like, that's awesome. 
However, I, keeping God in the back of my mind is not where he belongs. Right? There's a, there's a part of me that's sitting here going, like, praise God for the movement. However, I'm continuing to pray and hope that God would do a work where he's not just in the back of your mind or in your back pocket or something like that, that he moves to the forefront of your affections and he becomes the God that he actually is to you. That, he, that, that all of a sudden he ascends on his throne and you reckon him out. This whole thing is about him. It's not just, hey, he's going he's gonna to ruminate in the back of my mind. I'm going to bring him out when I need him, when I want him, when I need an uplifting thought or something like that, a piece of advice for my life to make my life a little bit better. No, no, no. My hope and my prayer is that everyone who's in this, this consideration phase of God is going to say, hey, okay, that's great. I'm considering him. And then in the middle of that thing, I'm going to come to recognize he is the king of all kings and he is the Lord of all lords. He is the one who spoke the world into existence. He is the one who demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners Christ died for us and I'm going to recognize who he is and now he is going to become the center of my life and so praise God for everyone in that phase in the seeking phase but I'm hoping and praying that you take that next step and you recognize who he is and you begin to dwell in the presence of the most high God because this entire psalm is for dwellers who are people who are dwelling in the presence of the most high God and that's who gets to find rest in the shadow of the almighty and so before we even get into the rest of the psalm, church, I, we have to ask the question, am I actually a dweller or am I just someone who's passing by? Am I actually a dweller or am I just waving at the things of God and, and, and just kind of like high-fiving it from time to time, checking the box on the little, on the little census thing, right? Like, I, I, am I actually a dweller? Am I someone who enjoys the presence of God, who, 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 who comes back and wants to soak in his word? who wants to actually come and pray, who wants to be with him just to simply be with him. Am I a dweller or am I someone who's actually just kind of passing through? I was reminded of um, a few years back when I first started here, I had the entire worship team in my home and getting to know each other, that kind of a thing. And I asked a few of them to share their stories. I was like, I want to know just how you came to be where you are today. Like you're leading in worship. How did you become a worshiper? I'm not talking about your salvation experience. I want to know, how did you become a worshiper? Maybe it is your salvation experience, but a few of them tell their story, and I love um, one guy's story, which honestly, it kind of represents what a number of people were saying, and that we're all kind of in that same boat. But one guy stands up, and he says, you know, um, I came to faith very early on in my life. That's my story. I had the Christian home and that whole thing. I came to faith very early on, but he goes, quite honestly, my life didn't really begin until I was about 18 years old. And he goes, that's when God actually grabbed my affections. That's when he blew my whole worldview up. That's when I began to understand that the depth of his love for me, what grace actually means, what it means that I've been washed and set free. That's when I began to sit down and devour his word. That's when I began to get on my knees, cry out to him in prayer. That's when I showed up on Sunday mornings and I began worshiping him rather than just singing some songs. That's when it was just a little bit different than a few bucks in a plate, but I was actually giving out of an overflow of the generosity which I've been receiving from him. That's when my service was an act of worship to him rather than a thing to check off the box. He goes, that's when everything changed. Do you hear what he's saying right there? What he's saying is that there is a difference between the time that I came to faith early on and the time that I began dwelling in the house of the Lord. There's a difference there between the time that I professed faith and I, I, I received the forgiveness of my sins and the newness of life in him and the day that I realized that he's actually worthy of my time. That's what we're talking about here with dwellers, church. Like it's my story too. Saved at five years old, saved very early on. It wasn't until I was 15 years old that I began to discover the beauty of dwelling in the presence of God. 
came home from school and, and I start devouring his word and start personalizing this whole thing and began dwelling in the presence of the most high God. Church, that's what we're talking about right here. Like the very nature of being a dweller is that dwellers linger. You know exactly who I'm talking about, right? It's the family member that's coming over for Christmas and they're gonna stay long, a lot longer than they, were, they should be staying, right? Right, it's the people that come over and it's way past bedtime but they still wanna talk and hang out. Right? You know what I'm talking about? Like that's the nature of being a dweller is, hey, I'm so enraptured by who you are. I want to be in your presence. I want to know more about who you are. And so I'm going to linger, and I'm going to linger, and I'm going to linger. It's what the psalmist is talking about when he says, one thing I've asked of the Lord that I shall see is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold his beauty and to be able to meditate in his temple. But one thing that I should ask of the Lord that I shall seek is that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And so before we get into this thing, church, like the question that you've got to be asking yourself is, like, am I actually a dweller? Am I actually a dweller? Or am I just passing by? And the thing about dwelling is, again, it's not a one-time occurrence. It's not a, hey, I made a decision to dwell when I was 15. It's a daily decision that, you know what, whatever comes about today, he alone is worthy of my time. So again, that's the question. Are you a dweller or are you just passing by? Because the reality of the psalm is there are some really, really powerful promises here if you're a dweller. And here's what he says, verse 3. He's going to say, surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. That's what he's promising right there. In other words, like the promise here is that there is a protection for the dweller from the deadly pestilence of temptation. Which, it makes a lot of sense, right? Like, it, it makes a lot of sense. If I'm dwelling in the shelter of the Most High then it means that I'm necessarily not dwelling in the presence of temptation along with other people, tempting people, tempting situations. I mean, that's part of the promise that's going on right here. I mean, it's, it's one of the benefits of being in a youth group, maybe a Christian fraternity or sorority or something like that. Uh, it's one of the benefits of being in a biblical Christian community is that you have a group of like-minded people that are all sharing similar values, that are all worshiping the same God, going the exact same direction right here. And so part of the protection there is that in the middle of that community, in the middle of that thing, he, there is a protection from uh, the, the deadly pestilence of temptation. He's going on right here. Uh, but even more than that, there is a promise that in the middle of it all, in the middle of this dwelling, he's going to be able to bring deliverance uh, from the deadly pestilence of temptation. Church, have you ever sat and thought about how much God has saved you from simply because you've been able to say no in your life? Have you ever, you ever thought about that? Maybe it's the flip side. Maybe you're, maybe you're on the flip side and said, you know what, how much could I have been saved from had I been able to say no back when I was 16, back when I was 19, 21, 25, whatever it may be. I mean, have you ever let yourself go there at all? I mean, it's not a healthy place to dwell in because it can easily lead to a whole lot of shame, but it can easily lead to a whole lot of worship, right? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Like, how much have you been protected from simply because you had been dwelling early on maybe? And God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, has given you the ability to say no when a lot of other people were not able to say no. I'm thinking of um, a buddy of mine we talked about uh, a number of years ago. We went through college together, and he had given me permission to share a bit of his story. But uh, we had this really hard conversation probably about eight years ago or so. At this point in time, I knew him through college. We walked together. We were in the same Christian fraternity. He loved the Lord and all this stuff. Um, young adult life comes around. There's wandering. He's blown up his entire marriage. Uh, there's been all kinds of disaster, and I'm coming in, and we're, re we're reconnecting kind of at the end of that thing, and, uh, and I'm like, hey, you know, what? tell me what, what happened. Tell me what happened, and so he tells me the story, and 
uh, of really the, the ending point of how the whole thing exploded and how it was at the point of no return. And he essentially goes and he tells me this story, which is, to be honest, is a pretty X-rated story. And the whole conclusion of the story was, Aaron, look, 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 if you were in the same place I was, there's no way you would have been able to resist what I was dealing with. You, there's no way you would have been able to resist the same things that I was seeing right there. And of course, you've heard me say this before. I'm like, you're right. But the difference is like, I don't happen to find myself in those exact same situations and stuff. And so we asked, and so we pushed on a little bit further. And I was like, where did this all begin? Because this is not the person that I know. Like, where did this all begin? How did you get to this point? And he goes, you honestly want to know where it began? And he goes, it was that time in college. You remember when I lost my dad? I was grieving and I was mourning and I was heavy and there was all this stuff that was going on. And he goes, that's when I started running from the Lord. Instead, I started saying yes to alcohol for the first time in my life, and I haven't stopped since. And I started saying yes to porn on my phone and on my computer, and I haven't stopped since. And he starts going, and he starts tracking along the map, and he starts saying, this warped into this, this warped into this, this warped into this, this warped into this. This is how I got to where I am today. Church, have you ever thought about how much you've been protected from simply because having been in his presence, dwelling in his presence, he's given you the ability to say no to some things at times in your life? I mean, church, I weird land is exactly what he's talking about. Like a fowler in this text, that, it's a hunter. That's what he's saying. It's weird language. Surely he's going to save you from the fowler's snare. That's a hunter. Surely he's going to save you from that. Like that's a, It's a natural enemy of ours. It's someone who wants to steal, kill, and destroy from your life. He wants to bait the trap. He wants to set food, a beautiful thing, on a trap that you're going to get enticed by it. You're going to take the bait, and it's going to take your life. That's the, the image that's here. Every time you think about temptation, you feel temptation. You think about the temptation. That's the image that you need to be bringing to your mind. It's bait on a hook. It looks juicy. It looks beautiful. It looks harmless. It looks innocent. It looks satisfying. It looks like everything you've ever longed for, and yet there's a nasty hook on the end of it that you're not able to get away from. I mean, it's, it's, the, it's the thing that you thought way back then. Hey, this is no big deal. Uh, everyone's doing it. Every, I, I, it's just everyone's doing it. So, But you're actually still dealing with it today. I mean, it's the thing that it's hanging out with your, the, the same friends over and over again that somehow only leads you to the exact same place. And you've never been able to shed it or never had the ability to say no or to go a different direction. It's what Time Magazine is talking about when they ask the question, hey, um, did we get it wrong about porn so many years ago? And every secular article and every secular magazine is all saying the same thing. So saying, hey, 25, 30 years ago, we culturally embraced this thing online. We thought it was harmless. We thought it was innocent. We thought it was private. We thought it was like there's no big deal about it. And now everybody's looking back at it and saying, look, even if you could care less about the things of God, it is incredibly damaging to your soul. I mean, literally every secular publication is saying the exact same thing that God has warned us about 2,000 years ago. I mean, they're all saying the, the, the exact same things. Number one, it does numb you to the things of God. Have you ever noticed a decline in spiritual interest in our culture today? No, it's not coincidental, right? That, it's not the only factor there. It's not coincidental by any stretch of the imagination. Like, it, it produces numbness to the real thing at home. It produces numbness to the things at home. There's an inability to engage well with the opposite sex in dating relationships. There, there's a dissatisfaction with monogamy. Like we're waiting longer and longer and longer because we don't, we don't want to be locked in with one person. It's not even a value anymore, right? Like there's a dissatisfaction with, with monogamy. There's an objectification of people which leads to an overwhelming desire for self-gratification. Um, you've noticed this. There's a rise in narcissism. 
There's a rise in selfishness. There's a rise in me, 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 which is exactly what they're all talking about. Secular publications giving testimony to exactly what God's been warning, about, warning us about for the past 2,000 years. Church, that's what it's designed to do. It's designed to say, hey, this is beautiful, it's satisfying, it's harmless, it's perfectly normal. Everyone does it. Why not jump in? Meanwhile, there's a hook underneath there that lures you in and makes you to the, brings you to this place it's hard to get away. I mean, I'm thinking about the way that the devil uh, tempted Jesus in the wilderness just before Jesus' ministry began. You guys remember this in Matthew 4? Remember his tactics at all? This is just after Jesus has been baptized. He's about to begin his adult ministry on earth. And we see this scene in Matthew chapter 4 where he's going and Jesus is in the wilderness fasting and praying 40 days and 40 nights. The devil meets him there and there's these three temptations. Verse 5, the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you really are the son of God, then throw yourself off. Throw yourself down. What does he really want from Jesus? He wants him to be dead. He wants him to be dead. Throw yourself off the pinnacle of this temple. That's it. And you see what he's appealing to right there. He's appealing to pride. And of course, Jesus is, he's, you didn't know, hey, most humble, you know, God man ever, right? Singular, but anyway. Um, he's, not, he's not taking the bait right there, but he's like, he's trying to appeal his play. He's like, um, hey, you say you're the son of God. All you got to do is jump off. All you got to do is just jump off. And he wants him dead. And, and you remember the uh, reasoning that the, that the enemy gives to Jesus? He says this. He says, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will lift you up so that you won't even strike your foot against a stone. In other words, he, he takes this psalm, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. And he twists up the very word of God in order to say, hey, he told you he was going to save you. He told you you're not going to get hurt. He told you nothing bad's going to happen to you. You're the son of God. Why not do it? And just remember exactly how Jesus responds. He comes back with the word of God, and, and he comes back. But that's what temptation sounds like, church. It's the voice in your head that says, hey, um, you deserve to feel loved. You deserve a little bit more than you're receiving. You deserve to be loved, and he has not given you a spouse. Or maybe he has given you a spouse, and you're not receiving what you really deserve at home. Therefore, you should go and get what you deserve. I mean, after all, he just wants you to be happy, right? Isn't that what he wants? He just wants you to be happy. But however you define happiness, of course, but he just wants that. I mean, that's what it sounds like, church. It's you deserve to be promoted. You've worked harder than anyone else. And so it's not really cheating because everyone else cheats too. It's not really cheating. It's no big deal. It's the norm. It's not really that. So just go, just go along with it. I mean, that's what it sounds like. It's, it's just an innocent flirtation. You can look, just don't touch. It's just an innocent flirtation. Like no one's ever going to find out. I'll never forget a pastor friend of mine. I heard him share this story at a conference, and it stuck with me for a number of years. I thought it was incredibly powerful, but he shared this story about how he and his team, about eight people on this ministerial staff, they were traveling overseas doing a mission trip. I believe they were somewhere in China. They had a, uh, they had a layover also somewhere in China over the night, but for the past two weeks, they've been doing incredibly difficult work. And so the work has put them out in the bush, like in these really remote areas. They've been sleeping on the floor for two weeks. And so they haven't had beds. They haven't had um, bathrooms. They ha I mean, just, I mean, we're talking legit mission work right here. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. Like legit missionary work right over here. They're sleeping on the floor. And so they get back. It's about two weeks done. They're doing a layover somewhere in China. And they get to spend the night. It's their first night in two weeks in an actual bed. And, uh, and he's, just telling, he's just telling the story. He's like, we're all in pain. We're all hurting terribly. One of the guys, I think it was the mission pastor that was with him there, 
um, his back was just really out of whack. I mean, he was having trouble walking. He was in a tremendous amount of pain. So they show up to the hotel, and they're like, hey, do you have a masseuse around? I, I really need someone to just work this thing out. And they're like, yeah, we'll send one up to your room. And so everybody's hanging out in one of the rooms. They're kind of debriefing the trip. And meanwhile, this guy's back in his room, a different floor, different, um, a different floor, different room. And the masseuse comes in and sets up the table, the whole thing. He gets down there on the, ta- on the, on the table, face down. And, and um, basically, he just says, it's, it's not very long before I realize this is not the kind of massage that I'd signed up for. And he's there on the table. He doesn't see what's going on or anything like that. And, and you can, I'm not going to describe a whole lot except to say that it only took a couple minutes before he realized this is not what I was asking for. And so he looks up, and he's really, he's going, what's going on? And he realizes she's not wearing what she's supposed to be wearing. And he immediately freaks out and he grabs this sheet and he runs out of that room as fast as he can. Almost naked with the sheet wrapped around him, running down the halls of this hotel. He takes the elevator, goes to their room, just furiously banging on the door of this hotel room. And he runs in there. And this guy's sharing the story and he's like, he was totally, completely freaked out. And he was just crying. He's like, I don't know what's going on, but this is not happening. They're there. I don't want this, you know, all this other kind of stuff. And they end up having to go call security and to bring a security team in there. The woman would not remove herself. She was there to accomplish a task, and she would not remove herself. Church, the question is this. How in the world are you able to run from that if you're not dwelling in the shelter of the Most High all the time? How in the world are you able to say no in a live situation like that where no one's going to know what took place? They live halfway around the world, people you will never see again. The doors are locked, everyone else is gone. How in the world do you say no then? If you're not dwelling constantly in the shelter of the Most High, how in the world do you say no then if you've been saying yes in your head, yes in your heart, yes in your fantasies for so many years? Church, the promise of this psalm is that if you're a dweller, and if you're dwelling in the shelter of the Most High, feasting, on his goodness and who he is in prayer, dependent upon him, dwelling in the presence of the Most High, then in that time the Holy Spirit will come and he will bring you protection against the temptation which you need, which will ultimately be protection from all kinds of pain and evil in your life later on. Church, I'm telling you, you cannot afford to not be a dweller. You just can't. I mean, the whole psalm is for the dweller. Yeah, I mean, he continues on in verse 4 and And he says, he's going to cover you with his feathers, and underneath his wings, you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and your rampart. I don't know if you've ever seen this picture here with the penguins that are here in Dallas. Um, Just kidding, there's not a whole lot of penguins here in Dallas. But, um, you know, you you see this with penguins all the time. If you've seen the movie March of the Penguins or any of the nature, you know, documentaries that are online or something like that. um, There's a scene in March of the Penguins where I guess one of the penguin couples has a baby, and um, they've got to travel, I want to say, 70, 80 miles over a course of about three to four months uh, to go find food. There's no food around. And there's a scene in the movie where um, Mama Penguin takes the baby newborn penguin underneath her wing and just kind of shoves them underneath the, fi- the feathers. And for the next three to four months, just carries this baby across 80-mile-per-hour winds, ice, uh, I mean, all kinds of predators, all kinds of attacks, all kinds of difficulty, just to get to the end three to four months later to be able to, to, be able to find food. And that's the image that he's giving to us right here. He's going to cover us with his feathers, and under his wings we will find refuge. And so it's not the fact that, hey, it's not going to be cold outside. 
It's not the fact that, hey, there's not going to be any predators around. There's not going to be any pain. There's not going to be any difficulty or anything like that. The promise here is that in the middle of it all, he is still going to be with us, protecting us. Uh, The best way I can say this is protecting us from the worst while redeeming everything else. Okay, follow me here. He's going to be protecting us from the worst while redeeming everything else. Um, I think this is where it's going to get really, really tricky because the reality of pain is that all pain pretty much in the moment feels like it's, as wor- it's the worst that could possibly come. Whatever it is that thing is, it's personal to you. It's going to feel like, hey, it can't get any worse than this. Thinking of Elizabeth Elliot, Jim Elliot's wife, who I referenced earlier in the message. Uh, Elizabeth Elliot wrote one of my all-time favorite books. It's called Shadow in the Shadow of the Almighty. I uh, read it in high school. It was one of the books that God used to kind of transform my life and to get a hold of me and I love that, but the entire book is essentially the journals of Jim Elliot, and you get to understand his heart, his passion for the people, his passion for the Lord, how he's willing to sacrifice everything, but essentially years afterwards, she published these journals and, and everything in there. If you've seen the movie End of the Spear, you know the Jim Elliot story and, uh, and how, yeah, trying to share the gospel and, to, and to, to bring it to a cannibalistic tribe, and of course, he was, um, he was killed as a result of that. Anyway, his wife publishes the book later. She names it after Psalm 91, uh, which is a little ironic considering the fact that Jim Elliot was not spared anything that this psalm seems to promise, right? And yet, nevertheless, she still hangs on to it. And I love how she describes her decision to continue with this title. But she says, uh, I am absolutely convinced that the Lord's refuge is not the absence of suffering or death, but it's the promise of his presence, which protects us from suffering the worst possible defeat. Because everybody's sitting there going, how in the world are you going to write a book and title it Psalm 91 when your, your husband's not protected? I mean, you're a widow now because he was not being protected. And that's her answer. She simply says, I'm convinced that the Lord's refuge is not the absence of suffering or death, but it's the promise of his presence, which protects us from the suffering, the worst possible defeat. In other words, in her own mind and in her own heart, her husband's loss was not the worst thing that could possibly come. And she goes on and talks about it in a number of her talks elsewhere. But she goes on and she talks about how the worst possible outcome is that there could be a tribe of people in the world who could go the entirety of their lives living as hate-filled cannibals and never understand the love of the Father for them. That's what compelled her to go back and to be able to move in with that tribe years later down the line and to see revival take place in the cannibalistic community. So what are we talking about, church? Are we saying here, okay, are we, are we saying that he doesn't intervene there and that it's, that it's kind of a matter of semantics? That it's just, hey, it's a semantics and that he doesn't actually intervene. No, like what we're seeing all throughout this psalm is a promise to intervene. There's a promise to come and to intervene, to bring protection, to bring miraculous intervention in some of these things where you are dwelling in the shelter of the Most High God. A, a number of weeks ago, I shared some of these stories, but uh, a pastor friend in Rwanda, uh, you remember the guy I was talking about about three or four weeks ago? This is the guy that was complaining about a seat change in his life uh, when God was actually using it to save his life. Um, anyway, he's telling a, a lot of stories here about how uh, he and all of this community around there were survivors of the massive genocide in 94. Uh, if you don't know the story back there, about a million people slaughtered over a 100-day period in Rwanda. And uh, he goes in and he's just sharing story after story of how God brought miraculous healing and intervention into those things. This is what he does, church. One of my favorite ones was the day that the, 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 day that the genocide began. And he talks about how God immediately delivered them there. He said, all of my neighbors, all of my friends, family members, everybody in the community, they're just up there, and they're just going nuts, and they're just hacking people to pieces. 
And he goes, me and my wife, we took our little ones, we went into the back room of our home, and we hid back there because it was coming from everywhere. We didn't know who we could trust. We didn't know what was going to take place next. And we hid in the back corner of our home, and we just prayed, Lord, be our refuge, be our strength, be our deliverer. God, we need you right now. And they just sat there and they prayed. And he goes, I'll never forget hearing the front door of my house busted in. They came in there, a handful of guys come in there, and they're knocking down doors, they're overturning lamps. I mean, they're destroying everything in there, and we are just kind of silently weeping back there, holding on to things, saying, God, be my deliverer. And they get to the final room just before the room that in, and all of a sudden, a group of birds comes in the front door of this house. There's a thatch roof, and they start getting tangled up in there, creating this squawking scene at the front door. The people that were in the room next to them with the machetes, they run out to the front of the house to figure out what's all this commotion, what's going on. And meanwhile, they get distracted and they don't finish up checking out the rest of the house. They take off and they come back out and he's telling me the story and he's sitting there going, we could not believe what just happened. So he goes, I grab my wife, I grab my kids. We slip out minutes later once they move down the street. We get into the car and we start hightailing it down the road. We drive and drive and drive. Finally, we come to a blockade uh, in, the, in the road. Uh, I wasn't familiar with this area, he says, but I could see that there's a group of militia there and anybody that was coming that direction, they were going after him. And so I stopped before we got to the blockade and he goes, Lord, I need you. Psalm 91, you are my refuge. I'm dwelling in the shelter of the most high. Come, let me abide in the shadow of the almighty. God, I need you right now. And he says, in the middle of a prayer, he goes, I look back and I see my kids huddled under a blanket in the back of the truck and I'm going, Lord, I need you. He goes, just then I look to my left and I notice that there's a small opening in the way because the light, the, the, the the sides of the road were all lined with woods. He could not really see very deeply beyond there. It was all woods back there. He wasn't familiar with this area. And he goes, in the middle of these woods, I saw a small opening in between a couple trees that was about wide enough for my car to fit, fit through. And he goes, I had no idea what was back there, had no idea what was waiting. All I know is that that's what I needed to do. And so he goes, I took a hard left and I went down there and you wouldn't believe it. These people that had seen me that were already marching away, they didn't travel, they didn't, they didn't, um, they didn't come searching for us down that, down that aisle. He goes, it was wide open. There was an entire path that we were able to go and we were able to escape on. Furthermore, I'm driving down this road and there are people that are hiding. They're, they're seeking refuge. We're able to pick them up and we're able to bring them to shelter. Church, he absolutely intervenes and he absolutely protects. He does the miraculous. That is who he is. He comes in. He hears your cry. He comes in and he does bring miraculous intervention over and over and over again. He does those things that seem, that, 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 that books are made of, that movies are made of. He does all those things. That's who he is. But here it is, church, like even when it seems like he's not, even when you're the Jim Elliott in the story and you've got a, a spear through your heart or you're the widow that's involved in that whole story, like the dwellers live with this constant reminder that if you are in Jesus Christ, then your end isn't actually the end. Right, that's what dwellers live with. Like, if you are in Jesus Christ, your end is not actually the end. In other words, no matter how bad it gets, like, you can understand that Christ is taking care of the worst of it. That's what Elizabeth Elliot is dealing with. He's saying, hey, the loss of my husband, as grievous as it actually is, is not the worst thing that could possibly be taking place here. That's why Paul's going to say, Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. In other words, Christ came. He took care of the condemnation. He took care of the fear. He took care of the worst possible outcome that could be taking place. It's why Paul's going to say, 1 Corinthians 15, he's going to say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where's your victory, death? Like you're trying to suffocate me. You're trying to keep me down. You're trying to drive me into depression. But where is your victory? Where, oh, death is your sting? Disease, why, where is your finality? Loneliness, where is your bitterness? In other words, church, like he's already taken care of the worst that could possibly come. 
and dwellers in the, in, in, dwelling in the, in, in the shelter of the Most High live in that constant reminder that, hey, this is not as good as it gets, that there's, a, there's an eternity to be spent in his presence, and it brings a consolation and a protection to whatever the thing is that we may be dealing with around here that is otherwise not had. I think one of my favorite ways to illustrate this is, um, I, I've shared this one before, but I liked the movie um, and the book, The Shack. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal, the, the Shack, the one that was, uh, remember all the controversy around it, right? Is that Trinitarianly? Is it true or not? You're like, no, it's not exactly right. But um, if you have not seen it, it's a, or read the book, it's an interesting book and movie. Um, by the way, don't get your Trinitarian theology from movies. Get it from the Bible. It's pretty sufficient there. Um, also, you're going to be seeing a lot worse movies than something as redemptive as The Shack. So come on, let's, let's get that real. Anyway, um, if you're not familiar with the story, but the entire story is about how God comes and he intervenes in the middle of traumatic pain and, and difficulty. I mean, the whole story is about a guy um, who's grieving the loss of his daughter. And it's a traumatic, horrific story about how that actually took place. And so in the middle of his grief, he's a believer and he's, he's saying, hey, why God, why? Like, why would you do this? I, you said that you're a protector. You didn't protect me. Like, what are you doing with this whole thing? And the whole thing is about how God meets you in the middle of that. And so he gets a note. It's evidently from God, right? And, uh, and the, the invitation is, hey, go meet me in this shack. And so he's curious and this is shack in the woods. And so he goes and he does that. And he has this long interaction with the triune God and different personalities and things of that nature. There's a scene in the middle of the movie where he's angry and he's furious. And he goes to this room and he's talking with the personification of wisdom. And he's just, he's just kind of unleashing all of his anger and his fury, saying, how in the world can you, being a good protective God, allow this to be taking place? Where's the goodness? Where's the love in that? How in the world could you be doing this to me? And he's crying, and he is screaming, and he is angry in the middle of this scene, if you remember this whole thing. And all of a sudden, wisdom kind of speaks up, and you can hear him kind of say, I'm sorry, um, did you think that your daughter was better off with you? Because you're acting like this is what's best for her. And he, you see this little interaction take place, and all of a sudden, the personification of wisdom gives him a vision of what's actually taking place with his daughter. And I took a little screenshot of the movie right there, but you remember how it plays off. It's this picture of his little girl running free, completely healed, full of joy, with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, in these fields of flowers, in this, picture of, this, this picturesque kind of a thing of heaven. And you see the father just wilt, just wilt, and he just falls down, and he's just crying, and he's crying, and he's just crying. And what you see in the movie is that that is the only thing it took for him to have the peace that he needed to be able to understand that she's actually better off in the end with the father who loves her in all of her perfection. And it's just this beautiful thing. I mean, church, like what I'm trying to say is that it is good to be dwelling in the shelter of the Most High. And when you get this picture right here, it's going to be perfect one day still future when we get to dwell in the shelter of the Most High. It's what we long for in this Advent season. It's this reminder that Christ is returning again. He's going to make all things brand new. He's going to, make, he's going to undo all, all wrongs. He's going to restore all joy. No more crying, no more weeping, no more tears, no more pain. It's what we long for in this season. And there's this reminder here that, hey, one day there's going to be this picture of perfect joy in the, in the shelter of the Almighty God. And what he's saying right now is that there is, there is goodness, there is joy, there is satisfaction, and there is protection to be had dwelling in his presence right now. Church, what would it be like if we could rest in the understanding that, hey, he's already taking care of the worst that can come right now? I'm thinking of my actual grandmother's funeral, and it was the first one, one of the only ones that 
that I could say was actually full of joy. Uh, it was probably sophomore year of high school when it took place. Um, she was 90 years old, lived an awesome life. And this is one of these funerals that she planned it out, right? <laughs> like, who does that, right? She's like, okay, here's the songs I want sung. Here's the liturgies I want read. Uh, she planned out the whole thing. She's like, I don't want you crying. I don't want black. I don't want any of that kind of stuff. And she's like, she planned it out to a T. But she asked her daughter, which is my mom, my aunt, and my uncle, her kids, her three kids. She's like, when you get to the graveside, I've got one request. Here's a song I want sung at my graveside. And I've, I think I've, I've shared it with you guys before, but it's the song, just plant a little watermelon on my grave and let the juice trickle through. <laughs> just plant a little watermelon on my grave. It's all I ask of you. Now fried chicken is mighty, mighty fine. Now there's nothing quite as fine as a watermelon vine. So pl plant a little watermelon on my grave and let the juice trickle through. Church, you know how weird it was to see that song <laughs> sung by my mom and my aunt and my uncle on my grandmother's grave? I mean, it was one of the most bizarre experiences in the world. But what I'm trying to say is that there's unbelievable protection and there's unbelievable peace. If you'll just dwell in the shelter of the Lord's, of the Most High right now, and you understand that he's already taken care of the worst that could possibly come. He wraps it up, and I just want to ask me, Show you what he says here. The Lord interjects his voice in verse 14, and he simply says, because he loves me. Church, do you love him today? I think that's a question that we're asking. Do you love him? Do you dwell with him? Do you want to be with him? Because he loves me, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him, and I will honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Can't help but think that for some of us that that's the line that you need to hold on to today. Maybe there's some of you that have been here and you've been left behind. Maybe you're in the middle of that why God moment right now. You're asking, Lord, how does this reconcile with my life? The promise is here in this text is that dwellers will know satisfaction again. And some of you need to hear that. Feels like all of your satisfaction has been robbed and stripped from you. And the promise here is that if you'll just Dwell in the shelter of the Most High. There will, be shelter, there will be satisfaction again. Church, I say so many times, some of the most godly people in this room today are some of the most forgiven, and they're also some of the most scarred. And God has brought them through incredibly heavy, incredibly difficult, incredible, incredibly feels-like-defeat kind of moments. And he's healed those wounds, and he's created this brand-new beauty comfort out of what was already there. Church, I'm telling you, that like, there's incredible comfort and protection for those who will dwell in the shelter of the Most High. So the question of this psalm is where we really began. Are you a dweller? Or are you someone that just stops by from time to time? Because the invitation here is to come and find rest in me. Come and let me be your refuge. Come to me. Listen to me. Receive from me, hear from me, and I'll be the healing for you. That's who he is. He's a protective God. May he be your refuge this Christmas season and for years beyond.